I'm going to pray real quick and we're going to start us off. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I know the message that you've given me, God, and and Father, it's become the message of my heart, the message of my ministry, the words of my mouth. It's become my marriage. It's become my kids. It's become everything, God. But Father, I pray that what I speak today, I pray that only my lips would bring out that which you would have me say. I, I pray, God, that it would edify every person in here. I would pray that their eyes would be open and that you would give them the vision of Jeremiah. That you would begin to ask them questions, God. What do you see? So that I may not bear this burden alone. So that they may see and grow a passionate heart and believe that they are the solution, oh God. That they may see themselves like you see them, God. Full of faith. Strong in Christ. The light of the world. Teach us this morning, God, and mature us. In Jesus' name. I want you to know that I'm trying so hard to press forward, but my heart isn't really done grieving over the things of the world. My heart has become somewhat fixed over the constant tragedies our world is facing right now. This week it's Munich. What will it be next week? So much death, drugs, poverty, slavery. I hear the war drums beating. The heartbeats of lost people looking for light that has not come. It hasn't come because we're content. We are content because we're comfortable. Comfort is an American disease. It's plagued the pulpit and the pews alike for far too long. A new season must begin or we will find revival at a painful cost. There is rarely any worldly comfort when following after Jesus. Sorry, fellas. It just isn't. To be in his company requires the cross. The torture device that is strapped to our backs with only one intent. To kill all self and flesh. We've been studying from Luke chapter 5 now for the past three or four weeks to get a better picture of Christ and the ministry of Christ. And believe it or not, he is what we're supposed to be imitating, not each other. Let me say that again. Christ is, is supposed to be what we are imitating, not each other. This isn't what we do, and the, the reason is obvious. It's because it's hard. It's hard to imitate what you must read and pray to than what you physically can see. That makes sense, right? I mean, what I see every day ends up shaping me and molding me. And it's a whole lot easier because I can see it. I can model what I see. I can become what I see. It's hard to model an invisible God. We would have to read. It would require time in prayer. Have you ever uh, um, wondered why most every church looks alike and yet many of them are voided of the Holy Spirit? Because it's physically easier to tackle physical growth versus spiritual growth. It's easier. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I have been trained to physically grow a church. 
I have no doubt, and any of those who have been around me in youth ministry, there's no doubt we can grow, a, physically grow, numerically grow a church, but will it be spiritual growth? Will we grow spiritually? I know many churches that are full of people, and they're about an inch deep in the spiritual realm. I know many churches that are not full of people, and they're a mile deep in the spiritual realm. It's not to say one's attributed to the other. It's all about how much we read and we pray. When our churches grow in number, we assume that we're doing something right. And so does everyone else. And so we keep doing it. The only problem is that the failure to imitate Christ has consequences upon the rest of the earth. This is the reason we can visibly see a world void of Christ in it. Take a glance at the news on your Facebook or feed or... I mean, come on. We're always talking about something like abortion. We're talking about pornography. We're talking about murder, fraud, slander, coveting, greed, idolatry. You see it every day. It's like white noise in your life. You don't even notice anymore. And anybody even know, did, did you know people were murdered in Munich this week? You know, like I, I, there's a lot of people don't even watch the news. They'll never know what's happening. They think they're, in their world, it's completely good. Everything is fine. Sometimes I think that may be the best way. Ignorance is bliss, they say. For all of our outreaches and busyness, are you aware that rarely does a church grow because of such planned events? Rarely. How much money is spent? How much time is invested? Well, it doesn't matter. As long as one comes, I love our satisfaction with the few. Well, we've got one saved. That should show your spiritual inadequacy. P Peter preached once and 3,000 came. Do you know where most growth comes from? It comes from telling somebody. You know, truthfully, most people, if you ask them how they were saved, somebody invited them. Somebody began to talk to them. It began to be somebody they hung around. It began to be somebody that they knew. Most often, it, begins, it starts in the same place it's always started. Isn't that the irony? With all of our technology and everything that we do today, majority of evangelism that has that good evangelism, solid evangelism, happens from a personal relationship. I've been doing outreaches in churches for over 15 years, and one of the things that I've come to learn is that outreach is not all that evangelistic. It's holistic. Let me tell you the difference. Evangelistic is when we're actually going out and we're trying to reach people for God. We're trying to explain to them who Jesus Christ is. We're trying to help them understand God. We're, 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 we're trying to bridge grace and sin. We want, we want sin because we know one thing, grace will overtake sin. So we introduce them to Jesus. But, or, but, but, but the outreaches we do today, they're more holistic. What, is, what does that mean? It means that we're practicing the works of Christ. They're more so we can become or understand what it is to work in Christ. That's the reason we don't see a lot of evangelism come out of outreaches. Oh, they're good to do. Don't get me wrong. I'm not against an outreach. We're going to do some. But hear me when I say this. They're more for you than they are for the city. They're more for you to understand who Christ is, for you to take the weaknesses. Listen, because that's not always convenient to do an outreach. It requires your time. And any time we're starting to take your time, uh, that's the time when you're taking your cross. We start putting you in positions where you, listen, man, the Bible says that there's nothing good in us, so there's nothing that desires to do these things except Christ, so that when we do good, that we can't boast in our own goodness. We boast in who? We boast in Christ, right? So outreach is when we start to do good or we start to do works in the name of Christ, it's so people can see the glory of Christ. That's a holistic thing, not an evangelistic thing, although it will, by 
it, it does have some evangelistic tone. But it's more about filling the poverty within our own heart and teaching you how to selflessly give than about telling people about Jesus. Rarely does a church grow because of an outreach it's done. I'm not saying it doesn't. I said rarely. There is one thing that grows a church, and that is Jesus Christ. Funny thing about Jesus, he never really did an outreach, a group gathering together where he assembled a bunch of things together. His outreach was every day in life. Every time he spent time with you, every time he came in for a, of a dinner, every time, those are outreaches. Those are, make no mistake about it, those are evangelistic and those are outreaches. Those are the times when he came and said, you know what, we've got a couple of uh, loaves of bread, we've got some fish, let's go ahead and feed. But how many of those people stayed? As soon as he started preaching hard stuff, right, they all dispersed. <laughs> I mean, he's not the guy you want to bring to an outreach today. Jesus had a, had a tendency to love on people and then preach something hard and disperse them again. He never created a subculture community whereby everyone had to go to him. Rather, he lived and walked amongst us. There was no place you went to go see Jesus. You, Jesus came to everybody. He traveled around and went to everywhere. He lived and walked amongst us. He was at our workplace, our homes, and our community. He's found in relationship with all who meet him. He is approachable and seemingly one of us, not a religious leader who sits in an unapproachable place. He is found hanging out with the least of these, the undesirables, the poor, the misunderstood, the troubled, the discontent, the, those in debt, the oppressed. Our picture of what these people look like is skewed from our upbringing. Because, man, we assume, like, the, we, sometimes often we assume when I say any of those things, we assume as someone in, in, like, you know, rags or homeless. That's not true. I know a lot of people who struggle with depression who have all kinds of money. But they live every day thinking they're all alone. They live every day lonely and sad and, and hating life and being miserable. Look at the call of Matthew, the tax collector. He's a man of wealth. He's a man who has his affairs in order. He's been a fairly honest man for all things, considering even as a tax collector. However, he is looked at like a traitor every day of his life for working for the Roman Empire. And he kind of is. I mean, he kind of is. These Roman Empire, they would take and they would, uh, if you couldn't pay your taxes, oh, we'll just come take your kid. And now your daughter becomes the slave or your son becomes the slave of the Roman Empire because you couldn't pay your taxes. Or how about the property that you've been working that's going to pay the taxes? How about we just take that? Man, they don't care. And a lot of these tax collectors were dirty, very, very dirty. They were not good people. Look at Luke chapter 5, 27 through 32. It says, later as Jesus left town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with him. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. While some on the outside would look at Matthew and see that he 
looks like he's doing all right in life. Only Jesus can see the heart of a person. Jesus can see the heart that is sick and in desperate need of God. He comes to us and he says, follow me. One by one, all the apostles, I love this, they all left everything and followed. Maybe that's the big difference in our walk with Christ. Our commitment is shallow. We don't leave everything and follow most often. We treat Jesus too often as if he's someone to listen to, a great motivational speaker, a wise teacher even, but rarely as someone that beckons us to leave everything we know and follow him. We reason within ourselves that we can have the things we have and Jesus too. The only problem I have with this line of thinking is that too often I hear people quoting the scriptures on how the Bible says we're going to do greater works than even Christ. But these same people quote all the things that they do for the sick, the broken and hurt, proof of Christ in their lives and ministry. They boast their convention numbers, their church growth. All the while the world gets sicker and sicker and the church becomes more and more powerless. There's too much bragging in the church. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you ever really heard anyone boasting in the spiritual presence of God? Oh, we got a lot of things to brag about in the church, but when's the last time we said, man, every morning God shows up, crazy things begin to happen, the pastor can't even do anything, he's laid out over here while God is showing up miraculously. We have yet to hear that we've, it was, those days are long gone. It hurts me to say it, guys, because that's what I hunger for. Just about every pastor I meet tells me the first things first. They tell me how many they're running. Oh, go to a pastor conference. It'll make you sick. I've literally sat at the tables, and before I even was introduced, how many is your church running? What's that matter? (laughs) They want to know how great your worship is, how busy you are, how much their people give in an effort to show how spiritual they are. Well, we got a bunch of money in our church. Well, that must mean you're super spiritual. Man, our worship is so great. You must be the greatest worshipers ever. I mean, that's what they lead with, guys. In contrast, I've never heard a pastor tell me how much their people confess. I've never heard a pastor tell me how much their church is a church full of repentance. Or how much their church prays. I don't think anybody's going to brag there. Or how many sick actually get healed every week. Or how their orphan and widow program is coming along. Oh, we've we've got a program coming along. We've got outreaches coming along But do we take care of the orphans? Do we take care of the widows? That's very explicit about what we should be doing already in the church. You know, there's a lot of things that already says what we're supposed to be doing, but we pick and choose what we're going to do. Maybe that's why Jesus throws that last tidbit in there. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. We obviously know that the Pharisees need Jesus. I mean, he's talking to them in this. We know that they need him. We know that they're just as sick as everyone else. They just refuse to admit it. Let me say it again. We know they're sick and in need of grace as much as anyone else. They just refuse to admit it. They keep it veiled because they believe they're supposed to have it all together. I'm going somewhere, guys. Hang with me. Maybe that's the problem with so many churches void of Christ. Their failure to admit they're sick and need to repent has kept the Holy Spirit at bay. And let's face it, without the Holy Spirit, what will draw men to our churches? What will draw men to the church if God is not there in glory? Good music, fancy lights, smoke, a decent Bible lesson will only last for so long. 
Do not mistake God's grace and mercy for ministry approval. Let me say it again. Do not mistake God's grace and mercy for ministry approval. Let me explain that. It's not in my notes, and I probably shouldn't very away because maybe I shouldn't. But we went to camp. First day of camp, I kind of talked about this just the other day where, like, the worship wasn't all that great. The preacher totally messed it up, whether he didn't come prepared or he came jet-lagged or whatever. And then yet I saw things in the altar that I had never seen. Kids break that I had never seen break. No doubt to me, God was there. Now, can I tell you what most pastors will do and most people that are running churches will see? They will see success. What we did pleased God. Look at how God showed up. And I can't help but think, guys, and I'm going to be very much the prophet right now. I can't help but think that the church is much like Samson right now. Oh, we're powerful while we're drinking and sleeping with the prostitute. Oh, we're winning victories, slaying Philistines. But on this other hand, I'm, I'm doing all kinds of sin. And I think because I still have power that God must love my lifestyle. That's what I think. I truly believe we, we've reached a point where we're much like Samson, the days of Samson. Oh, God has laid upon us, man. If you'll just do these things, if you'll just, listen, if you'll stay under the Nazareth oath, that's what he's telling Samson. Listen, stay under this. And the first thing Samson's doing is he's, he's totally blowing all that. Everything he was supposed to stay away from, he totally indulges himself in. And what does God continue to do? Bless him, Right? Until there reaches a point where what happens? His hair gets cut off, right? We understand that. His anointing is gone. But in the end, right, he begins to have one last moment of prayer where he's down on his face and he's down. He pulls the pillars down one last time to get on his knees and, and repent before the Lord. I'm going to tell you right now what's happening to the church. Delilah is already there and she's clipping the hair slowly. She's clipping the hair slowly. Slowly we're losing our anointing and power. And we're too wooed by her. Too, too, too drunk to notice. Because it seems God's blessing us. Wait a minute, we're having victories. Our churches are growing. Our worship sounds the best it's ever been, Pastor. Uh, uh, things are so good. We're, we're doing all these great things. Why is the world dying? Well, the world's supposed to die, Pastor. We just need to pray that Jesus come. That's selfish, and I won't be a part of it. The Bible says that God's not willing that any should perish, then neither should you be. Because let me tell you something. If Christ comes right now, how many of your family are going to die and go to hell? And you should, that, should, that should tear you up, and if it doesn't, your heart is full of stones, and you need to start heart transplant right now. If God is not willing that any should perish, then neither am I. I'm not willing. I will see my brothers living their life passionately for the Lord. I will see my friends who are still struggling, smoking weed, and still drinking and doing all the other things and indulging themselves in life with. And while for a season it might be fun, I'm telling you that season is coming to an end. Because I believe. I have faith in a God who's bigger than my circumstances. I believe. God said he can and God said he will. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. To those that think they're healthy, they're being bypassed in the effort to correctly 
triage the situation. God is looking to, to heal the sick and give grace to those who repent. Is that you? Do you know that you need Christ? That you need to repent every day? Every day I repent. I, I was talking to uh, Pastor Jason that's coming in next week, and we are talking about camp, and he goes, man, I had this kid come, and he, he's not normally part of my group, but he's coming in, and he'd been at a Catholic church, a Catholic church for a long time, and he'd never seen really Protestant church, and the first night, the message hits him like a ton of bricks, and he goes, and he repents at the altar, and he said, Jim, every single night they hold the altar call to come and get saved, Jim, he would go down to the front and get saved again and again and again. And about the three days in, some of the kids start to make fun of him. And I love this kid because Jason's telling me the story. He goes, I had to get on to the kids and everything. He says, but I kind of, Jason goes, but I love this kid who turns around and says, you don't realize you have to be serious with the Lord. You don't realize that I understand God's forgiven me, but I want it every day. Oh, this kid, he's gonna, he should be a preacher. He should be a preacher. We all need to repent. When this idea is constantly before us, it's hard for us to cling to any form of self-righteousness. When we start to understand that it's through repentance, that God's grace and God's mercy is on it, that any of our successes is, listen, does a success matter? It's, the, it's God's, right? Because listen, if you start to own your successes, you might as well own all your failures too. Those are yours too. Well, that was the devil. Every time I succeed, it's me. Every time I don't, it's the devil. Man, that's almost Pentecostal. There's enough of that being said, it comes out the mouth whether they realize what they're saying. Those that understand their need for repentance have a correct view of themselves. Those that have a correct view of themselves before the Lord are those that will have a better chance of being Christ in this world. Think about it. It's hard to be judgmental to those who need Christ if you always see yourself as one of them. People are very comfortable around me at times. Even where I work, they're going to have a few drinks every now and then. And, and there's times where I literally think to myself, don't they have any risk? Man, they know I'm a pastor, right? And that's where, uh, by the way, that's where the judgmental spirit comes in. Like, what, what does that mean? Like, I'm better? And, and, and let me tell you, what, you know what stops me from saying anything out my mouth? Every time I see them drink anything, I feel the hunger, the sinner in me come up and go, man, that looks good. You know how nice it would be? to just forget, because that's what alcohol was for me. A place where I could displace my depression, displace my loneliness, displace those things, and for a few seconds or a few minutes or even hours, forget. Not deal with it. But I know to go back to that road is to go back to my own vomit. I know that to do that. But then I start to think this. They know that they can do that. They're comfortable around me. because, And we're going to talk about God while that's happening. Because they know that I'm not judging them. I'm accepting them for who they are. That I trust the Lord will make the change that needs to happen. God accepted me for who I was. And once I have a correct view of this, even in my own heart, in my own self, it allows me to love others right where they're at. When you fully understand that grace was given to you as a sinner, it's easier to give grace to others. After all, you've got so much in common. You both were once enemies of the Lord. They called Matthew scum. Good company, right? Who are they? They're the church leaders of their day. No wonder nobody liked going to that church, right? 
The church is never like being called out for her mess, but besides being called, uh, 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 besides being called husband, Christ is also called the great physician. If there was ever a time for the church to have open heart surgery, it's now. It's like she is on uh, one of those fad diets and it's killing her. She is doing what is popular now. And when the next best thing comes along, she will be all about that. In the meantime, the world will continue to suffer while she figures out what makes her beautiful isn't what she does or even how she does the things she does. It's Christ alone. It's who she belongs to. That's what makes her beautiful. There's nothing. I, I mean, I'm really good at graphics. And I do take a lot of pride in how our things look around here. Uh, I, I mean, if you look at our banners, I try to do everything as to the top quality as I can uh, within my own personal giftings. But make no mistake, the only beautiful thing about Mosaic is Jesus. The only beautiful thing about my life is Jesus Christ. You know what makes my wife beautiful? is her weakness, and when I see her weaknesses and I see Christ in her rise up, because I remember who she was at 17. I've known her since she was 17 years old. She never spoke. She always stayed quiet. Anytime we argued, she would never talk at all. She would go and like pout and kind of go by herself and want to be alone, and we'd never talk things out. 20 years we've been married now, she's a totally different person. And I'm going to tell you, I already know who made that person. Christ made that person. Right? And let me tell you something, uh, uh, mine too. I was totally, we used to laugh at the idea, man, can you, like somebody remember prophesied to me, like one day you're going to be a pastor, like, oh, that, that dude doesn't know. I'm still struggling smoking weed in the church. Because <laughs> if he knew that, he wouldn't have said that dumb stuff. Right? That's just like, you know, that guy's not a prophet. And we laughed. I remember laying in bed laughing at that. That's funny. That is really funny. And even my friends thought it was when it first started to happen. Passion for God started to increase in me like I'd never understood. And even when I got to Marble Falls, I thought, okay, I'd learned all this stuff. I am so ready for ministry. But can I tell you, as soon as I came to Marble Falls, my heart did something weird. It, it changed. It, it conformed to something totally different than I ever was. Like all of a sudden, I had a heart for people I had never known. I mean, I'd only lived in a certain area in East Texas for so long outside of my time in the core. And then to come to a place I'd never been and have such a heart and a passion for people I didn't even know. God is always constantly working. Listen, the whole I, I tell you this to show you, it's not me, it's Christ. I want you to see Christ, not me. The problem is that we're so struggled to veil those things. We're so ashamed of who we are. So we try to hide all of it. I want you to see that I have it all together. That's why I have to be real quick to tell you, like, I'm like the worst pastor considering the way pastors look at each other, right? Pastors want you, they're like, oh, you need a five-year vision. People are going to die for their lack of vision. I'm thinking, why didn't Moses die? That joker led him around for 40 years in a circle. I'm going to tell you right now, if most people led somebody around for 40 years in a circle, that's a dead church. That's what we would call it. We would not call it godly, and we would not call, I mean, you know, the only reason I think Moses lived, they were too scared to touch him because he was so close to God in prayer, they were scared of him. Think about it. He walked out of the tent, face glowing, like, we don't want to know that. Let's beat up Aaron and Miriam, though, his brother and sister. Think about it. Go read the stories. He led them in a circle for 40 years. And so as a pastor that doesn't have, like, what does this look like? Where does Mosaic look like five years? I don't know. Here's what I know. We need to listen to God. Well, how do we do that? we got to start by being a praying people. If this city is going to look at us like a spiritually saturated people, because that's how they, I'm going to tell you right now, like a lot of that's because they look at me, but I'm going to tell you, as the pastor goes, so goes the pew. So I call it upon you to be a praying people. That cherished prayer with God. If you want to glow like Moses, go get on your knees.
That way, when other people step in the room, it's not a fear of you that they have. It's a fear of God. It causes men and women to repent. We're so messed up, though. Everything is always backwards with us. We always think we need to present this, this look or appeal that everything is okay. But it's counterintuitive and it's counterproductive. We desire so greatly for the world to see the power and greatness of Christ, which is such a good thing, but how we go about it is blind of any biblical knowledge of ministry of Christ. We create monumental, beautiful buildings. We get the best musicians that money can buy. We develop all sorts of programs for our children, for our teenagers, our young adults, and even seniors. And we find men whose oracle speaking abilities are unsurpassed, and our tendency grows as our world sinks. In contrast, the church in Jerusalem was the poorest in all the world after Pentecost. People sold their lands. They used every resource they had to feed the poor and take care of each other. Go study the epistles. They're full of the Apostle Paul asking the other churches to be generous with the church in Jerusalem because they're so poor. This wasn't some huge building in the middle of Jerusalem. No, the church was birthed in Pentecost. Revival was the home church called, it was called this, the upper room. And you know why it was called that? It wasn't a place called the upper room. It was an upstairs room. That's all it was. In the upper room, what started from 12 apostles had grown into 120 people praying that God would send the Holy Spirit. They didn't do anything until God moved. How'd you like that ministry vision? How about I call you here every Wednesday, all of you for prayer, for an hour-long time of prayer. And every Wednesday, we're going to meet here for prayer, and we're going to pray and pray and pray and pray, and God's going to move. And he, we're not going to budge until God. Man, some of that, I, it would be first like three nights. We're passionate, Pastor, and then I'd start seeing the trickle. I love you, but we'd all of a sudden get busy. Because let's face it, hour of praying, some of you are like, man, my knees ain't going to do it. I, 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 that's a long time, Pastor. I know. You spend the first 20 minutes doing your laundry list of everything you got going on in your head that's, that's more important. And as soon as your flesh starts to die, that's when we're going to get to the good stuff. That's okay. You don't think that they struggle too? They struggle too. The, here's the key. But their heart and mind was in the same place. Heart and mind was in the same place. When they heard God moving, they moved. When people were looking for answers, Peter preached. The leadership group that would take the gospel to the ends of the earth was constantly questioned by the church for its lack of education and lack of ability. Think about it. As soon as Peter starts preaching, right, they find Peter and John a little bit later, right? The Pharisees do. If you've read the book of Acts, they look at them like, these are like, they're, you know what the wow factor in them was? These are like dumb guys. Like in the, in the realm of education, these are guys that are like down here. And so they're like, man, these dumb guys sound smart. How is it that these uneducated people all of a sudden, man, like, where is this coming from, right? But they, it's, the Bible says they recognize these are one who had been with Jesus. Let me tell you something. That's how Jesus gets glory. Because the veil is out. There's no veil on Peter. You know that guy's a dumb fisherman. How did this turn out? This guy's not like the kind of guy who's like spent his whole life reading the Bible. No, he hung out for three years. I'm going to tell you, some, in some places, you can't be ordained in the assembly of God without four years of school. You can't be. Peter doesn't have any papers. How are they allowing him to preach at all? That's a shot. I shouldn't have taken that one. But he preached. They look at him. They think he has no ability. He has no education. 
but they don't question the fact that he sounds as someone who has spiritual authority. And they never question the power by which these men moved either. They don't question any of that. A movement was born, and it would sweep the entire world. How can, how can the world see the greatness and glory of Jesus unless we start to allow people to see our weaknesses? I know I beat that drum a lot, but I'm just being honest. The biggest problem in the church right now is she's faking it until she makes it. Good luck with that one. And what you've done is created a whole bunch of church, a whole bunch of church people that are faking it. And they're just hoping, well, until I make it, until I get the glory, I'm just going to fake it and act like everything's okay. Uh, yeah, look at our world. It's punishing it seems to me so shameful that we try so desperately to cover up our nakedness rather than point to the one who's accepted us in grace and mercy. We, we are uneducated and lack in ability. We are. We do struggle to understand righteousness and holiness. We do fail many times at doing what is right and seeking things that are healthy to our spiritual walk. Right? However, when people see our flaws, they will also see Jesus in all his glory. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans? In chapter 12, it says, I will boast only about my weaknesses. I'm not trying to teach you something that's not scriptural, right? He says, if I wanted to boast, I would be a fool in doing so because I would be telling the truth, but I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life and hear in my message, though I have received such wonderful revelations from God. So to keep me from be becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Listen, three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in what? Weakness. How many churches are excited to put on their weakest front? How many of you are excited to show forth your weakness? Oh, where's the power of God in my life? I don't know. What are you acting like? You acting like someone who needs to repent or someone who's not sick? Jesus said he's only come for one, not for those who think they're not sick, but for those that repent and know that they need him. You want to know what he's teaching in Luke? Listen, we're on the Jesus stuff. I'm teaching you this stuff, but I'm telling you, to teach this stuff, we have to go through the Bible. I'm trying to teach you biblical truth. You need to be able to look at the Bible and see it in its entirety and see. You should be able, it's, like, it's like being a doctor and understanding enough things to diagnose, to see the symptoms and diagnose what's wrong. How can we have churches blowing up and growing? I hear that a lot lately. Oh, man, we got this. We're planting all these churches and stuff, and I'm watching our world decay before my very eyes. So it makes me beg the question, is this the right way? My power works best in weakness, so now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. Paul's testimony, his life, Oh, I can, if you want me to throw down some scripture, you want me to throw down some theology that make your brain hurt, Paul's saying, I'm glad to do it because I know it, it's the truth. But I don't boast in those things. I'm trying to show you where God saves me. I'm trying to show, if I show you my weakness, I'll show you where God's glory is dwelling within me. If I show you where I'm weak, then I'll be able to show, if we, if we as the church can show the, this city our weaknesses, then they'll see the glory of God through us. And when they see the glory of God through us, that's when they're going to be drawn to the Lord. Wow. Because let's be honest, man. They're faking it too, right? Like they got it together. Like they don't need God. Right? We all were there. 
What are we scared of? That the world will see us for what we really are? I've got news for you guys. They already see it. Why do you think they ain't uh, uh, so uh, quick to jump on this, this uh, wagon? They see our fear. They see our attempt to bridge the gap between the church and the world. And they're not impressed. Because they've heard our message. They know that we're supposed to be a people set apart. But they don't see it that way. They don't see us in the church like that. They see us as a church trying to be like the world. They see us caught up in it as well. And they just don't buy it. Jesus said healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners and need to repent. When people see Jesus do what Jesus does, then they believe, and only then do they believe salvation is real and that grace is free and that there is a God who glorifies himself in mercy. This is what will change the world. That's why it's imperative we return. What is return? I keep saying it over and over until we get it. It is going back to the beginning. Do you remember what it was like to be saved? Do you remember what it was like when you felt the first time grace and mercy beckon you? When you felt accepted that even though you've done all these things that you've done, this list of guilt that you've got before you, that God said, I don't care about that stuff. I love you. Well, God, I didn't always love you, and I, I still struggle to love you now. I know, but I love you. I don't need your love for me to love you. I'm going to show you a video real quick. and unforgiving as we are. 
I've been in churches in Bangor, Maine, Miami, Seattle, San Diego, and St. Louis, and honest to God, and so many Christians I meet is too small for him. Because he is not the God of the Word. He is not the God who is revealed in and by Jesus Christ, who at this moment comes to your seat and says, I have a word for you. He should. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin and shame, dishonesty and degraded love that's darkened your past. Right now, I know your shallow faith, your feeble prayer life, your inconsistent discipleship. And my word to you is this. I dare you to trust that I love you. Just as you are. Not as you should be. Rich Mullins would go on to say it was the first time he would ever hear the gospel explained so simply. Just the simple gospel. God loves us just as we are. There's one thing I've learned while reading anything that Brennan Manning has, has uh, preached. Is that I pray that God is every bit of what Brennan says. I've never experienced reading anything uh, so moving before, anything that I've read through Brendan Manning, because he sure does paint God as a lover. Oh, uh, just, hmm. He said, you're only going to be as big as your concept of God. He said that too many times the God of most people is too small for him. I guess I talk so much about change, this world, because I believe that God has sent you. With all my heart, I believe that God has created a people that he is called by his name that will believe and have faith, that will return to him and set things right. Now, it could all be just a question if it weren't for the countless times in the Bible men have returned to God. The King Josiah, eight years old, heard the scriptures read to him. It says he immediately tore his robe and fell down. At eight years old, he understood one thing. We were not living as we should. And it's time to go back. And he began to order and decree that everything that was idolatry be burned. And all those who were serving idolatry and refused to denounce any of those things would be killed and cast out. And he was going to set right the land. One thing that he had done that no other king before him, a lot of them had attempted these things. And they would burn certain things down. These things would rise up as these kings got older. Or another king would come and they would rise. The idolatry stuff would rise back up. And the one thing it would always say, it says, uh, he repaired the wall. But he did not restore the breach. 
And we constantly say these things until Josiah comes along. And Josiah makes sure everything is right. He fixes everything. He restores everything. He, he burns everything. And he brings revival back. And God says, because... Here's what I love. Be, this is what God said. Josiah, since you... This is what he attributed to. This is where I said, God, this is where it ties into Luke. Because you tore your robes when you heard this. That's it. It's not that you burned out all this stuff. Not that you... All this stuff he was going to do. He said, because you tore your robes when you heard this, I'm going to make sure that in your life, while you are living, everybody will know peace. And a land of prosperity came back. A people who served God came back for a season. And God extended a grace period. I loved it. Not because he had done anything other than tear his robes and let me tell you, that means he repented. God has come for those who were willing to repent and live a life of repentance. Open repentance before everyone so that they may see my weaknesses. Uh, I boast in my, look how messed up I am. Uh, I mean, think about what, you know, what did your pastor preach on? Well, he preached that, man, if we, if we can do these things, we'll become, you know, we can be better Christians. We can be better. No, ma'am, I went to church. My pastor preached on how sorry he is and how great Christ is. That's why I have to come before you and constantly like talk about my past. And why? Because, man, so that you can see even when I struggle, when I watch somebody else have a beer and I go, yeah, that looks really good right now. They, that's like self-admission. Why would I have to, why would I admit something like turn the pulpit so you could see Christ working in me? The fact that I say no to it every single day, the fact that I resist the temptation of such things. Why? Because the glory of God in my life is so much more rich. It's so much more fulfilling. The loneliness is gone. The depression leaves. I used to take medication for depression and things like that early on when I first met Joy coming out of the Marine Corps for some of the things that I had done and participated in and saw and witnessed and coming out of that, I was on all kinds of prescriptions and then, taking, and then doing all kinds of illegal drugs on top of it. And yet God came in there and says, let me fill that void. And let me tell you the reason I'm doing it all, why? Because I'm too strong to let anybody see that I'm weak. And I never could be delivered because, until I decided, you know what? God, no, 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 I don't care who sees. I, I am messed up. And so I tear my rope, God, and I bend down and I say, forgive me, God, I need it. I need it. I need you. I cannot do life without you. And God began to fill that void and begin to fill my heart, begin to change my life, change my wife, change my kids. My whole family nucleus around my mom and my dad, because I didn't grow up going to church at all. It all changed over, over the last 20 some odd years. It's all changed. They look at me as spiritual authority. My mom and dad talk to me about praying now, and they talk to me about uh, church and things of the church, and they'll come and listen to me. Pre My parents never set foot. They were good people. Don't get me wrong as far as good sinners can be. But they didn't go to church. We weren't raised in church. Nobody asked me to go to youth group. Nobody asked me to come to children's church. I was too bad of a kid. You didn't want me to come to children's church. I'm going to beat up your children's church kid. You know, I'm, I'm that kid they made the bumper sticker for. My kid beat up your A honor roll student. I mean, like, that's me. And I say that to you because I'm also saying this. And look at the glory of God in my life. That's not a testament to how, oh, he must walk close with God. He must do things right every day. And that's why God blesses him with the presence or with the anointing. No, it is my absolute 
self-confession to you of my weaknesses that allows God to come into my life and allows any, if you see anointing me in me at all, it is because I am a self-proclaimed weak man so that you may see the glory of God in my life. I love Paul who said, who is the pastor? He is the man who sees like the guy in the shop window. I'm here, I'm, I'm the fool on display. That's what I am. To the city, to my family, to my kids, They've seen me make mistakes, mistakes that I've admitted from the pulpit, getting mad, getting angry, stopping my car thinking, I'm just about to get out and I'm about to knock a dude out. And then I have to sit in my car going, but I'm a pastor of a church. Can't be acting like that. And my kids are going, please go, Dad. You're sitting in the middle of 1431. Please go. I know, because I'm about to get out and hurt this guy. And then I have to take a few breaths and then keep driving and let it go. And, and I say all that thing, and you laugh because you've been there. You're like, yeah, I know. I know right? But, but then there's that piece of me that goes, man, you're a pastor. You're supposed to be the better. You're supposed to act better than this. And I'm thinking, what? You know, that's a lie. It's like, what am I, not human? I, like, I don't get angry? Like, somebody can't offend me or hurt my feelings or anything? No. I tell you because I am weak, but in my, I boast in my weakness so that you may see the glory of God in me. All the programs all the worship, it's, it's not, listen, we're going to worship the Lord. That's going to happen. We're going to teach kids. We're going to teach youth. We're going to teach people and equip them with the gospel. That's, that stuff is going to happen, but make no mistake, it is not our strengths. And I don't want to veil, and I have to be very careful here because it's too easy to become all those things. And I can't put down anybody else because I think it's almost, it's natural for us to gravitate towards that to gravitate towards thinking these things are what make us, that we've earned something with God. Never, never. There is no success in God. There is only mercy and grace. There's only mercy and grace. Amen? Stand to your feet. This morning, I'm going to make an opportunity for you to um, 